Peace, peace, family. You are now entitled to the ultra-magnetic and supremely energetic vibrations of Leave with Logic. Welcome back, welcome back, y'all, to another episode of the Leave with Logic podcast. I'm Brother Fahim. I'm your host, and uh, I appreciate y'all listening. Take some busy time out of your day to uh, hear what I have to give you. Typically, what I give you guys is uh, some insight and observations that hopefully will help and facilitate, you know, you guys to uh, start reflecting uh, on a high level. So hopefully you can reach a level where your knowledge and wisdom and understanding is elevated. That's really what I uh, set out to do. So, also I want to take care of a little bit of uh, housekeeping. So I'll be dropping a new podcast every Monday. Every Monday at around, I'd say, 5. Every Monday around 5. With the exception of this one today. <laughs> but every Monday at 5, to, to start your week off, to top off your work week, you come by and listen to uh, Brother Fahim and Lee with Logic. Um, I appreciate that. I want to uh, also, while I have you all's ear, I would like for you guys to go to YouTube and follow Roma's Rad channel. Again, on YouTube, go to YouTube and follow Roma's Rad channel. Yes, that is a little little fella. He's an elementary guy. He's doing amazing things. And uh, he's a content creator on YouTube. So it would be great if you could follow and support because he has some content that I think the youngsters will enjoy. Now... Back to regularly scheduled programming. So, I um, it's been a tumultuous week, man. It's been kind of rough, you know. Everything that's going on. Summer's getting ready to begin. Graduations, school finishing up. I mean, it's it's, it's been a lot. But um, you know, I I've been trying to keep my ear to the grindstone or to things that at least interest me, you know. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a person who loves to, I love to indulge in things that are um, mentally stimulating. Um, and so I might not, like reading is one of my favorite pastimes, but sometimes I don't have the time to read. I'm trying to be better about that, right? I talked about that in my first episode. How do you know what you think you know? Reading, how key it is. It's not only fundamental, right? They say reading is fundamental, but it's really essential. But nonetheless, uh, if I can't read, I normally try to listen to or watch things that could give me the same result as reading. Teach me something. Um, and I listen to podcasts that teach me something. I watch things on YouTube that teach me something. And recently, I was, uh, well, it popped up on my YouTube. Uh, Dr. Umar Johnson happened to visit the Breakfast Club. And Dr. Johnson was really, really speaking some prolific and profound truths. And I was like, wow, that's, uh, that's crazy. But uh, he spoke about a lot of things. It, you know, whenever they have guests up there, especially those who are intellectually inclined, as Dr. Umar. Y'all should check him out, Dr. Umar Johnson. Hate him or love him, the brother speaks truth. I support him. I think he's, a, I think he's amazing. Um, and another thing, you might not always agree with 100% of what a person says, and you don't have to, but extract that 10, 
15, 20% that you do agree with and run with it because that's what can help you, you know, chew up the, chew up the meat, spit out the bone, you know, but uh, he spoke about a lot of things, Dr. Umar did, but one of the things that caught my eye was, or caught my attention, they began to speak about Joe Biden. <laughs> they talked about Joe Biden and they discussed it. Well, they were discussing politics, not even Joe Biden. They were discussing politics and the topic of Joe Biden arose. And I thought that Dr. Umar did a masterful job of breaking down the science of what, what's going on, what we are seeing with those of us with our third eye who are observing what we are really seeing and what's unfolding in front of us. But he mentioned he mentioned a couple things that I thought were interesting. So I wanted to bring it up to you guys. He mentioned Joe Biden's you ain't black statement. So what happened? So I think maybe it was last year. I don't keep up with the politics. Yeah, it was last year. Joe Biden did an interview with Charlemagne the God, one of the hosts of the Breakfast Club, right? And at the very end, you know, they were getting ready to wrap it up. And uh, Charlemagne says, look, man, you got to come back and, you know, speak to the people. It's a whole bunch of issues that need to be dealt with, a whole bunch of issues that need to be discussed. And he, Joe Biden went on a tangent and he said, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. <laughs> thought to myself wow that's crazy but they brought that up now they brought it up Dr. Umar brought up in the context of this Asian hate this uh, anti-Asian hate COVID uh, bill that's being passed for Asian Americans right because the past year due to COVID and they tried to say due to Trump's instigation uh, Asian people have been discriminated against at a higher than normal rate and so it got to the point where they needed to write a bill and it's exclusive right it's uh not a bill excuse me they it was an executive order that that uh joe biden signed right they legislated and he signed it as the executive and it's exclusively for asian people um which is cool you know i'm not a I'm not against anybody. I really don't. I definitely don't hate anybody. I'm not for people not gaining their rights, right? Or not getting what's just due to them. But at the same time, if we're going to do it for one, we should do it for all. But that comes to, we have to look at, we have to look at what's going on. Like I said, we have to look at politics when we start looking into what's going on. And that's what Dr. Umar was emphasizing. He said something about that Asian hate, that anti-Asian hate bill. He said, you know, a lot of people who were defenders of Barack Obama, what they did was when they defended him or when they justified the little that he did, the next to nothing that he did for African-Americans exclusively, their, the common theme or the common statement was, well, he's the president of America. He can't be the president of black America. Right? He can't do something solely for black Americans or African Americans, whatever. And, you know, it's like, wow, okay. We get it. 
But here it is. Asian people have been a little bit uncomfortable for just a year. And they get a legislation passed, you know, endorsed by the president that's exclusively for them. So that totally nullifies and invalidates the argument that one group of people can't benefit. That totally invalidates the argument that black people can't get legislation passed. He also mentioned, Dr. Umar also mentioned that there's still an Emmett Till Act. There's still a legislation that they're trying to get passed uh, entitled the Emmett Till Act that Joe Biden has not mentioned, has not signed, has not endorsed, has not done anything. And so that made me like say, wow, that's that's um that's deep, man. That's super deep. So it made me just do a little bit of research into who Joe Biden was and who he is. Because I hadn't really researched Joe Biden. I knew that he had a lot to do with the crime bill. I knew that the 1994 crime bill, I knew he, he authored that. I knew he was an ardent advocate for that. But I wanted to really look him up and see, okay, what did, what did, what did Joe do? What did crime bill Joe? How did he affect African-American people? So I did a little research on him. And I found out that crime bill Joe, he, um, when I looked up, first of all, I looked up the, the 94 crime law, right? And what I found was, you know, that crime, it was the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, right? And Joe Biden, he oversaw it. He was a part of the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, at the time, and he oversaw that act. Now, um, the way that it's advertised out there is that the crime, the crime bill is what caused the mass incarceration, right? What I found through research was it didn't really cause the mass incarceration, but it absolutely was a chain in the link of things that was happening. Because you got to remember now, Richard Nixon was the one that initially started this uh, hard on crime. They called it the Southern Strategy. And what the Southern Strategy basically was, was appealing to Southern white conservatives. Hey, listen, we want law and order. We're going to be harder on criminals. And Ronald Reagan, you know, he exacerbated it. But actually, Bill Clinton, he, uh, Bill Clinton, he actually picked up the mantle and ran with it. And so, what happened was the crime law, the crime bill didn't really cause all the mass incarceration, but it absolutely, it absolutely helped. Now, like I said, um, they asked Joe, they asked Joe Biden about it during the, during his campaign trail. They asked him, they said, hey, look, Joe, what about that? And he said, listen, I don't really see how you guys are correlating the crime bill with the mass incarceration boom because 92 out of 100 of those prisoners are in state prisons. So in other words, it was a federal bill. It wouldn't affect people on a state level, right? And that's true, right? That, that's true. That would indicate that like 88%, 80-something percent of the people um, 
they were in state prisons, which we know to be true, right? But now, that says nothing really about Joe Biden, who he was, and what he backed. You know, when you follow these politicians, man, you should really get to know who they are. Not just who they are, but what they, what platform they, they stand on. You know, when you vote for somebody, do you vote for them because you like the speech that they made, or do you vote for them because there's a policy that will affect, that will positively affect your community? Right? Most of us aren't politically savvy enough, and we don't do the research to look into what these politicians, what these candidates stand on. So, I um, I look back uh, into some of Joe Biden's history and a couple of acts that I found. The first one was the Comprehensive Control Act. It was in 84. Uh, and it was spearheaded by Biden. He was then uh, he was uh, he was then working with Strom Thurmond. If you know Strom Thurmond, you know he was a notorious racist out of South Carolina. But what that did, what the Comprehensive Control Act did was it expanded federal drug trafficking penalties and civil asset forfeiture, right? So in layman's terms, police were able to, you know, take people's property, you know, guns, cars, cash, whatever. And they didn't have to prove that the person was even guilty of a crime. You could be suspected to be guilty and they could legally take that. That was the first act. I was like, wow. The next was the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 86. Again, Joe Biden, you know, and it really, it really looked to rack up the drug, the drug crime penalties, you know, and what it, what we saw in that act was it created big sentencing disparities between crack and powder cocaine, right? And we know that the only difference is it's like one is powder and one is rock. But the law, what it did was you would need to possess 100 times the amount of powder cocaine to be eligible for the same mandatory minimum sentence for crack, right? Now, how did that affect our community? You know, crack was the drug that they were using in the inner city in 86. Ready Rock is what they call it out west, right? Ready Rock. And so, you know, this Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 86 you know, this sentencing, it helped fuel, that helped big time. It exacerbated the racial disparities or the racial imbalance that we see in mass incarceration. Something else that Joe Biden was was behind. Now, the last one, and I think this one is the other one that I had heard about prior to researching it was the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 88. So what this did, and this was, um, it was co-sponsored by Joe Biden. And what this this one this one was a doozy. It uh, increased the prison sentences for drug for drug possessions. You know, it, the penalties became a little bit more harsh and enhanced, uh, especially for transporting drugs. You know, um, and it was coordinated with uh, federal anti-drug efforts. So it, they worked in concert, right? They worked in. Uh, concert and they established what was the Office of National Drug Control Policy. And so, you know, this uh, drug control policy, you know, they coordinated and led federal anti-drug efforts. Right? 
So all of these things, all of these acts that he stood behind, they only serve to widen the penalties and the punishments that people got behind drug behind drug offenses. And it really hit hard on African Americans. Like I say, you saw it in the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 86. You know, so a person could be found with a little bit of crack and another person was found with a little bit of powder. And the one with the crack got the stiffer sentence. And that's what Joe Biden was behind. Um, so, you know, I wonder did people know this when they voted for Joe Biden? Um, I wonder did people understand who they were voting for? You know, I found a quote where, you know, he talked about the war on drugs and what was going on. And he said, quite frankly, this is his quote. Quite frankly, the president's plan is not tough enough, bold enough or imaginative enough to meet the crisis at hand. He called for harsher punishments for drug dealers and to hold every drug user accountable. Right. Um, And he was this is Joe Biden speaking about George Bush's plan. Right. When he uh, when he uh, was trying to, you know, George Bush Sr., not Jr., when he was trying to escalate and he was trying to really broaden, when he was trying to pick up where uh, Ronald Reagan left off. You know, uh, Joe Biden's whole thing was, hey man, it doesn't include enough police officers to catch those thugs, you know. Not enough prosecutors to convict them and not enough judges to sentence them and not enough prison cells to put them away for a long time. These are all Joe Biden's words. Now he had to, he had to come back and apologize. He had to say he made a lot of mistakes when he was on the campaign trail because he understood the effect and the impact that it had on the African American community. These these acts, these laws, you know, while they're national and federal, they affect one population, one demographic, primarily, and that's the African American population. Yeah, you have other, you have other ethnic groups. Everybody gets high. Everybody. Any, any and everybody can be an abuser, right? But at this point in time, what we saw was uh, heavily in the inner city, it was drug infested. And then, you know, with the United States government aiding uh, and pushing this into our communities, um, it made for uh, a cesspool. Whenever I hear different drug dealers or different guys talk about the 80s, in that era, they talk about how much money was being made and how it would never be that way again because there's not that much money out there. Well, you have to say to yourself, the government was a part of that. They were a link in that chain. They made that possible. You know, how do you how do you fund the how do you fund the war on drugs while at the same time supplying drugs to the country? You know, that's a that, <laughs> that's crazy. That's ridiculous. But that's what Joe Biden was a part of. Now, I thought it was crazy just because, you know, a lot of the rhetoric that I heard, a lot of the conversations that I heard with people that I respected and loved was, you know, we got to get Trump out of there. <laughs> you know, I, it was all, it almost reminded me of 9-11 when the towers were taken down. And, you know, a lot of people in the country through emotion, through raw pain and hurt, they forgot all of the ill uh, dealings and they forgot all of the harsh 
context and history that America has and that America continues to have. So, you know, I remember people being very patriotic and wanting all ethnic groups, even those who were at the lower rung, to, to join in in the patriarchy. And it was like, nah, dude, we still have issues. Are you, are you serious? So when I heard people saying things like, we got to get Trump out of there, like, we ain't got to do shit. <laughs> we ain't got to do a goddamn thing. I have to do what's best for me and my family and my community. That's what I have to do. Right? Um, you have to do what you feel is best. But I would hope that we all lead with logic and we, we are informed, thoroughly informed of what we are doing and why we're doing it. Because I don't think we are. Not from what I've observed. You know, ask yourself this question. How do I identify politically? What do I really want from a politician? Right? Am I, am I a Democrat because my forefathers were, and foremothers were Democrats? Am I a Republican because it's trendy? And the group that I belong to primarily and by large is Republican? Or do I research? Do you guys know that you can be a conservative Democrat and you can be a liberal Republican? Did you know that? A lot of people don't know that. They don't realize that some of their favorite Democrats are con- have conservative platforms, hence Bill Clinton, right? And that's important because here it is. If, Bill, if, a, if a candidate comes cloaked in that political affiliation that you are identify with, whichever direction it is, red or blue, if you don't understand that they're running or that their core policies are primarily conservative or primarily liberal, <laughs> then you are um, you ignorant to the facts, meaning you don't know and you should. But nonetheless, I found all that interesting. I find it all interesting, right? Um, it, it, it's really, it's really uh, bittersweet. It's, 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 it's not funny, and it is. It's not funny because it has far-reaching uh, influence and far-reaching effects. It's funny because we don't seem, we, we haven't seen to inform ourselves to what politics really is. You know, you never, you never choose, you never decide, excuse me, you never decide who's running. You only choose the one that's presented to run in front of you. So, but um, that brings me to another point. And a couple books I would like y'all to, if you don't have, you should uh, have in your library. I realize that people are short on time. People have families, jobs, school, Sometimes, like I said, we can't read as much as we should. But I want to read to you out of two books by the same author by a gentleman named Dr. Claude Anderson. Dr. Claude Anderson. If y'all don't have any of uh, Dr. Claude Anderson's literature, you need to pick it up. You can find uh, Dr. Anderson on YouTube as well. He speaks a lot with Dr. Boyce Watkins. He's been on The Breakfast Club a few times. He has some lectures and interviews. I mean, there's so many of them on YouTube, and I, every time I watch one, I learn something different. But um, the two books that I was talking about, Black Labor, White Wealth, The Search for Power and Economic Justice, 
and also Powernomics, the national plan to empower black America. I just wanted to read something that Dr. Anderson said in Powernomics. Right? And Powernomics, basically what this book serves as, he not only gives a deep analysis and he dissects the plight and the condition of black Americans. I mean, he, he gives a historical text and background. But more importantly, he offers suggestions and he offers uh, solutions to the problem. So it's just not a book of him giving you a history. It's just not a history lesson. It's also giving us some homework that we can involve ourselves in, that we can take action and see some change. But nonetheless, on page 204 of Powernomics, um, this section, this chapter deals with, was devoted to political action. So he has a few steps, but I'm going to read you guys political action. Step seven, block voting based upon quid pro quo agreements between politicians, their parties, and black people. I want you guys to try to make the connection between what we want, like those questions I asked you. What do we expect out of our politicians? What do we expect out of politics? And also, this will maybe kind of, maybe kind of right. <laughs> Hopefully this will help you to understand the relationship that we have with these politicians and, and, and why we have them, how they got this way. But he says, the strongest weapon in black America's political arsenal is the black vote. Although it is small and it has great political potency because, because it is the nation's only black vote, only black vote, excuse me. Although it, it is small, it has great political potency because it is the nation's only black vote. No other group, not women, Hispanic, senior citizens, or whites, voters are black. These voter groups are not loyal to national political parties and rarely give more than 40 to 45% of their vote to any specific political party. Black Americans are the exception. They have the sole distinction of typically aligning 95% of their vote with a single national political party. For instance, from 1870 until the late 1930s, nearly 100% of this country's black voters voted as a block for the Republican Party. See, at one point we were Republicans. We weren't always Democrats. And the Southern Democrats went on to become the Tea Party. They went on to become, they called them the Dixiecrats. I heard Malcolm and a lot of the the ancestors and our forefathers from back in the 50s and 60s called them Dixiecrats. That's who your Republican Party is primarily made up of today. From the late 1940s to the present time, nearly 100% of the country's black voters vote for Democratic candidates. Over the course of these 40 years, neither of the national political parties nor any white office holders has sponsored a program or public policy strictly and solely designed to address the needs and interests of black Americans. They have never been paid a quid pro quo for their party loyalty and black votes. So we've been putting 95% of our votes behind the Democratic Party and we've never got our needs met. Right? It's never been an issue where solely black Americans need to get married. A black vote and quid pro quo commitments go like go together like ham and eggs. They support and complement each other. But black voters do not demand and white politicians do not practice quid pro quo with black voters. They are paid for their support with tokenism, even by liberal white politicians who hire a few black staff members and appoint blacks 
to powerless boys and socialize with blacks when there's racial discord. Since blacks never seek group-based benefits, how would, how would even a willing politician repay them? Listen to this. Reportedly, President Bill Clinton was amazed that blacks did not demand benefits for their unflinching support of him. However, as black Americans, however, as black America matures politically, the practice of ignoring the needs of black vote, black voters, instead of quid pro quo for black America, is no longer acceptable. Black Americans want to benefit in proportion to their contributions in the political arenas. We must use quid pro quo agreements to ensure delivery to services of services and economic resources. We must use these agreements to establish clear distinctions between blacks having access to power and blacks actually having power. Without agreements, only those black individuals and organizations who benefit from the status quo and hold themselves out as representing blacks will receive benefits. At best, the black masses will receive what little trickles down from broad, ambiguous programs designed for everybody. And that's what's happening, y'all. The trans, I'm not against any community. Let me put that out there. But I am for my own. I support my own. The transgender, uh, you know, transgender, the immigrants, while they all deserve attention, they don't deserve attention that the African-American community or the black community does. They should have their own. They shouldn't. These communities benefit from civil rights legislation. And it's because they've written it so deceptively right that like the brother was saying it's, it's used as an umbrella hell even corporations use the civil rights um, uh, umbrella to get what they need they use the civil rights when I say umbrella they use the legislation as an umbrella to protect them right but um, wow we I always tell people we're not a monolith but we vote like one <laughs> We vote like one. And what's funny about that is we're more, you can be, I, I tell people this, and I think I said this one time on Facebook, you can be socially conservative and politically liberal, right? Because that's essentially what black people are. By and large, we are very conservative. What do I mean by that? Many of us don't believe in uh, abortion. Now we understand if someone let me say we don't let me let me rephrase that. I understand. I'm not against I'm not in support of abortion. However, I understand there are some instances or some circumstances where abortion might be the only or the better option, I should say. Right? What do you do if a child is born under circumstances of rape? Right? What do you do if a child is born up under distress? What I always find interesting is people are pro-life, but they aren't pro-change for the system. What do I mean? You know, when you when you look at the foster care system, when you look at how this country tends for and helps its its orphans, it's despicable. That little girl uh, that they just shot in Ohio. I think that was Ohio. Yeah, it was Ohio. The one that the police went out there and shot four times. <laughs> I mean, it's not funny. It's, it's it's really sad. But she was in a foster. She was in foster care. She was in foster care, and so 
Um, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but I believe I heard some chants that those girl, those women that she was fighting, those were her foster mom's daughters, and she had been called over there to, you know, they had been called over there. They had been fighting. I, I read where they had been. There had been problems with, with that girl, but nonetheless, that particular day, uh, it's alleged that her foster mom called her older daughters over there to, you know, accost or, you know, attack that girl. Now, whether that's true or not, she was under duress. The girl was clearly under arrest, under duress. And that seems to be the state that a lot of our orphan population is in America. So my thing is, okay, we can't, some people, you don't want to give people a choice. Well, what kind of system, what kind of life are you bringing these kids into? What are you doing? Because, you know, Tupac said it when he said thug life. T-H-U-G-L-I-F-E. The hate you give little infants fucks everybody. In other words, when you don't prepare, when you don't set a place for people in society, when you put them to the low, the, the side, the margin, or the lower rungs, you're only cultivating that hate. You're only cultivating that animus. And so, you know, if we're going to force women to have abortions, then we need to reform how we care for those orphans, right? You know, don't just bring them into the world and put them into a system that's going to turn them into gladiators because oftentimes that's what we see. Not all the time, but oftentimes. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, you can be uh, absolutely socially one thing and politically another. You don't have to be uh, you don't have to be tied, ball and chain to a political party. That's unnecessary. That's unnecessary. So um, but yeah, the next book I wanted to read was Black Label, White Wealth and it's by Dr. Claude Anderson as well. This one is it this was more of a historical this gives some his history all the, the the acts all the covenant all the legislation that has happened going all the way back to like the maybe the 1600s man he he, he does some great research uh, but he he really tries to enlighten us on how black people have been the hardest working people but through systemic racism through institutional you know injustice we've been systematically you know forced away our our capability and our ability to build wealth has been you know stunted that's what the premise of black labor white wealth is but um on page 204 and 205 of this book <laughs> i want to read a little bit more about political a little bit more about uh politics excuse me so he's dealing with politics and uh, political empowerment, political strategies. And this is what he says. Um, what is the political system about and why is the possession of political power important to a group? Group power is important because the distribution of economic, social rewards and benefits within the broad society 
is the major role of a political system. The group with the greatest political power will receive the greatest benefits. For nearly 400 years, the United States immigration policies have been used to contain black populations at non-threatening and controllable levels. Black percentages exceeding 5 to 8% generated white backlashes. In a democratic society founded on the principle that the majority wins, the racial or ethnic group with the largest population always gets its way. National immigration policies and the integration process have restricted black immigrants from from entering the country and scattered them as minorities among whites. Such practices have consigned blacks to a constant numerical minority and therefore to a perpetual loser status, basically just breaking down how politics is a numbers game, almost piggybacking off that block vote that we talked about. Um, After emancipation, blacks struggle harder than any other group in the country to overcome barriers erected to prevent their participation in the political process. Voter registration and education drives were major components of the civil rights movement. The black vote became a decisive factor in all levels of elections. Blacks could proudly take credit for electing white candidates as members of state legislatures, mayors, governors, and presidents. They were equally successful in delivering black candidates to public offices. However, increased political gains do not mean improved conditions for blacks. We'll read that again. However, increased political gains do not mean improved conditions for blacks. Now, he talks about in the analysis how the Voting Rights Act of 65 increased black voting strength and opened doors and unprecedented growth in a number of black elected officials. However, or unfortunately, the material benefits to blacks did not increase a proportion in proportion to increase to the increase in black representation. Um, judging by the meager rewards and benefits that blacks have received from political from the political system, the real question is: Should blacks continue to participate in politics as they have in the past? Now, what he's saying is, we've been a block vote. Remember, I've read y'all now. We vote primarily. We're the only ethnic group that votes in such high number for one group. Ninety-five percent we vote Democrats. So he's saying, look, should we continue to participate? We haven't been getting anything. It almost reminds me of what Donald Trump said. What you got to lose? Y'all remember that? Everybody got pissed off because Trump said, what you got to lose? Well, it's the same thing Dr. Claude Anderson is saying, right? Should should blacks continue to participate in politics as they have in the past? Should we do like other ethnic groups do, right? Should we spread out our manpower, our voting power? so that we can use leverage to gain some of those political items that we want, right? What do we have to lose? Nothing. Um, Throughout history, black office holders have been neither numerous nor especially influential. Most entered and left office without altering black America's conditions. More often, they lacked power and direction and had few resources from which to draw support. Now see, that's kind of like when you listen to that, they didn't have the resources and they lacked the power. Well, we have the resources. I read, I forget where I read it at. I remember I read years ago when I was an undergrad that uh, African Americans, we make up enough money that if we created a country, we'd be the 16th wealthiest country. So we have the resources. Now we lack the power because we don't utilize those resources properly, right? 
we'd rather buy <laughs> we'd rather buy liabilities than invest in assets right I, I i really i'm really starting to enjoy maybe it's because i'm getting older maybe it's because i'm uh maybe it's just the tide as young people it's the tide but i feel like you know black people are turning toward more wealth building activities and a philosophy of economic fortitude and economic strength and I'm really enjoying that because it's making us innovative, it's making us creative, it's making us think outside of the box, it's making us consider our, our place and what we really want, right? But nonetheless, we have the resources, but we do lack the power. Um, uh, he also talks about quid pro quo. There's been little quid pro quo for blacks put candidates in the office so we don't hold them accountable. We didn't hold Barack Obama went unaccountable, unscathed. He went unscathed while he was in office. Um, you know, he, he went unscathed and it, <laughs> and that, you know, identity politics, we figured that because he looked like us, that he identified with us. And you know, none of his policies. He had trickle-down policies. Trickle-down policies or trickle-down politics is this. Whatever gains that the whole gets, some of them will, by default, trickle down to help those at the bottom or help those on the sidelines. So that's typically the way black people gain any type of political uh, advances. But, um, yeah... There's been little quid pro quo for the blacks who put candidates in the public office. This primarily results from the fact that white society controls nearly all aspects of government and it will not easily let government be used to help blacks. Another drawback is black political appointees. The reality of the political process makes it easier for them to bury themselves in the business of taking care of the general public's, public's business rather than proposing issues and programs to specifically improve the quality of life for blacks. They feel safer being good public servants rather than black employees with an agenda of their own. There's often little noticeable difference between them and their non-black predecessors or counterparts. They lose sight of the reasons that blacks fought for the right to vote. I mean, what's the point of having a family member at the head of a top Fortune 500 corporation if he can't even help you get in? You know, your network determines your net worth. Will Smith said that. But I mean, what good is your network if they can't help you advance or enhance your network? You know, people join sororities, people join fraternities, and I hope that they join them not just for the party and the dance. I want I was having a conversation with my good brother Carlos, and um I was telling him about the fraternities and sororities. I think I was talking about uh, my son, and uh he said, Man, he would always, when he was in school, uh, I, I think he had spoken to somebody and he had told them, look, you know, he was talking to some of the, the bros, some of the fraternity bros, and he told them, look, man, um, y'all could be really reshaping and reforming how not only you guys, y'all's images, but how y'all function, you know, how y'all navigate this space. You know, it, it should be more, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't just be about you know, the partying and the girls. And not even just about the public service, right? Um, 
It should be about really upholding, uplifting, and, net, and a network. A network that a member can depend upon when they need to. And that's not to say that uh, they don't have that, because I'm not in a fraternity and I'm not knocking any fraternities. But um, you would be sadly, uh, it would be a, a trifle severe. Let me say this it'd be a trifle severe for any young person to set out and join a fraternity or a sorority and they don't reap the benefits, right? You know, they don't they don't get it, they don't get out of it uh what they should, you know, a brotherhood, a network that can help take them to a to the next level and keep on advancing them to the next level. So so yeah. Um so yeah, um, so yeah, um, you know, these political, uh, black political appointees, if they're not looking like uh, they have a black agenda, what's the good? Why have them there? Why are you there? Why are you here? <laughs> That's what you ask them, right? Uh, blacks do not vote solely for good government. They vote for candidates who they think will bring them proportional returns when elected officials or, or their appointees fail to support black people's interests blacks must do whatever is necessary to bring the candidate and his appointees to task but we got to hold them accountable uh, politicians are becoming more open to expressing opposition to black issues they sense that these issues have been successfully cl- closeted or placed on the back burner after a major election is over Mainstream society expresses fatigue from hearing about race issues. Blacks comfort them by discussing mainstream issues in public and political forums. The Republican Party, the Republican Party, for instance, espouses that it is interested in increasing black membership under their Big Ten, Big Ten platform. In truth, their interest in black voters stops at the point where they feel that they have diluted the black block of votes that traditionally supports the Democratic Party. Wow! So they really. They really, under that big tent, they really cared not about really truly helping people who were black Republicans. This is long that they weren't in support of black Democrats. That would be something that I would speak to Candace Owens. What's, what's her name, Candace Owens? The sister that's the, the Republican political pundit, Candace Owens. And then what's the other sister's name? Angela Stanton. I really respect Angela Stanton. Um, I don't agree with everything she says, though. I think sometimes she could take it over the edge just going, you know, being so red, you know. Uh, she speaks some truth the same way that Candace Owens does, but, I mean, come on now. You got to stay true to your people. But nonetheless, I'm going to gloss over uh, this the, the recommendations. Well, you know what? No, no, no. Let me, let me finish this. If a massive number of blacks registered as Republicans, most whites would become Democrats. <laughs> If a large number of blacks register as Democrats, most whites will become Republicans. If blacks split their registration evenly between both the Democratic and Republican parties, whites will be very happy. If blacks develop a national plan in acquiring self-sufficiency, wealth, and power, whites will be unable to predict the black vote and will be forced to develop other strategies. I'm going to read that again. If blacks develop a national plan and begin acquiring self-sufficiency, wealth and power, whites will be unable to predict the black vote 
and will be forced to develop other strategies. It reminds me of when Ice Cube was campaigning for that covenant of black America. And I thought, you know, he caught so much flack from inside of the liberal black community that it was a shame. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure people knew the backstory, but, you know, Ice Cube did a lot of homework with that. It wasn't like he sat down and wrote a rhyme by himself. It wasn't like he sat down and wrote that covenant. You know, um, he got with people. He corresponded with people. He consulted with professionals, right? Dr. Claude Anderson being one, he sat with a lot of think tanks. You know, he did a lot of things. He did his due diligence, let me say that. And he caught a lot of flack from the black community. And he, was, he wasn't he was in support of either side. He was merely saying, we need to get a quid pro quo deal. There's no more we're voting in one block. We have a clear and concise list of demands. Um, we have an agenda, we have an objective. And if you expect to get our vote, then you need to come with it. You need to come willing to negotiate and, you know, support some of these demands and objectives. But he caught, he caught flack again, and it, was, and it was horrible. But nonetheless, the brother recommends this. First and foremost, he says, without wealth, without wealth, power, blacks as a numerical minority cannot hold public office holders accountable. So in other words, you know, you vote for these people and without any wealth to hold their foot to the fire, then it's no good. You know, it's putting the, the, the uh, what they say, put the horse before the carriage. I think it's putting the horse before the carriage, the carriage before the horse. You know, you're getting ahead of yourself. And that shows you the strength of economics, economic fortitude. You know, you hold these politicians uh, accountable not by withholding your vote but by you know uh, using your dollars it's a reason why lobbyists get more done than voters because they don't just go in there with problems they go in there with a bag and say look we're gonna we're paying you to resolve these problems if blacks cannot offer both uh, an office holder needs the majority of votes and campaign financing if blacks cannot offer both, they have no control over the candidate except when a narrow amount of support is needed to tip the scales. That's what we see. Even then, a white candidate has to be careful not to be overly identified with a group perceived as poor and powerless. Blacks must unify and form a critical mass that politicians cannot dismiss and must reward. So we're reviewed by, by the world as being powerless. And uh, again, your network determines your net worth. So... If you're amongst power, if you're amongst uh, 99 powerless people, guess what? You the you the uh, you the 100. Uh, the damage inflicted by non-accountable office holders will eventually compound and render blacks even more non-threatening. They must financially support their candidates and demand accountability for their investments. Like wealthy Jewish or corporate groups, they must hold politicians accountable by withholding their support during subsequent elections. I like that he said like Jewish or corporate groups, right? Because this is common practice. This is how you play for power. It takes money to wage a war. It takes money to get power. It takes wealth, you know. Um, in their political activities, blacks should stress that the most important issue for them is not political partisanship, 
The issue is race. There are blacks who swear by one political party or another, while whites switch political parties to make the bottom line come out right. During their enslavements, blacks did not belong to any political party. From the end of the Civil War until after the Great Depression, blacks primarily belonged to the Republican Party, but they were subordinated, lynched, and segregated from the late 1940s until today. About 85% of all registered black voters have been Democrats, and black America is still subordinated. This suggests that regardless of the degree of black political involvement, black conditions remain unchanged. So up under Democrats and Republicans, we've had no wealth, we've had nothing to leverage power. And so it, it really hadn't mattered what party that we identify with. We've still remained powerless. So therefore, he says, blacks ought to consider starting their own party and run their own candidates for public office. Blacks would have very little to lose since very few black public office holders win elections on the white vote. If nothing else, an independent political party would get blacks public forms, financial support, candidates committed to the black community, and white respect for having some backbone. Wow. Black businesses must shoulder their share of responsibility to support black political candidates. Black businesses are the first to ask for political favors and are usually given the least in return. Consequently, black political candidates are weakened because they own, because they have to depend upon white contributors. It is difficult, if not impossible, for black public office holders to be outspoken and supportive of black causes if they are dependent upon white dollars. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to read that again. It is difficult, if not impossible, for black public office holders to be outspoken and supportive of black causes if they are dependent upon white dollars. Whites only support black candidates who are non-threatening to power, wealth, and privilege for wealth and privilege, excuse me. Whites only support black candidates who are non-threatening to the power, wealth, and privilege of a white lifestyle. I would go farther not I would go farther, I would take that a step farther and say not only do they only support black candidates who are non-threatening, they only support black people in their spaces or in their establishments. When you work for them, you need you need to fit that criteria. You need to be non-threatening to the power, wealth, and privilege. You know, um, it's difficult, if not impossible, for black public office holders to be outspoken and supportive of black causes if they are dependent upon white dollars. And guess what, y'all? That can be said of anybody. Anybody dependent upon white dollars. You know, whenever, and I spoke about this too, whenever I hear people who have uh, more resources than the, the average person, I'm always saying, wow, they're foolish if they think that their benefactor is going to allow them to oppose them publicly. See, you can't oppose the NBA. You can't oppose the NFL. You can't oppose the Major League Baseball as a black person and they pay your salary. Who's going to pay for a problem? Who does that? That's not good business sense. You know, it <laughs> It affects the bottom line. You know, uh, when you do that, you know, you, you have supporters. Uh, when you look at who buys a majority, who who spends the most money on these products? It's not us. It's not African-Americans. So, number one, why would I offend my, my market? But number two, I'm not going to pay you while you oppose me and my lifestyle, my, my power, my wealth. Best thing for you to do is unite and create something of your own and do it that way. 
I mean, yeah, people have the right to do it. I mean, but it's 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 pointless. It's all for not. You know. So, yeah, I wanted to uh, you know, highlight those books, Powernomics, which came a little bit later than Black Label White Wealth. Right? The first book I read from Black Label uh, Powernomics came before Excuse me, it came after Black Labor, White Wealth. Um, but uh, those books, Power Nomics and Black Labor, White Wealth, also uh, Dr. Claude Anderson. Look him up, get your hands on some of his literature, listen to a few of his speeches, watch a couple of his interviews, and um, I'm willing to bet if you enjoy what I was saying, you will absolutely enjoy what he has to say. Um, because he's a uh, He's an excellent brother. He's a master teacher, and he has real solutions. And those people who follow him, Kanye, you know, Ice Cube, Dr. Dr. Boyce Watkins, excuse me, these people who follow him typically tend to have a better sense of economics and economic stability is what I was trying to say. They tend to understand economic stability and wealth better than their counterparts. So... Yeah, man. Um, I appreciate y'all coming through, man. Like I say, every Monday at 5, I'll be dropping a leave of logic. Leave your comments. Please share this podcast if you enjoy it. Um, and, you know, again, Roma's Rad Channel. If y'all will support Roma's Rad Channel. Uh, I think y'all will really appreciate what the young man is doing. But uh, peace and love, family. Until the next time.